0: Sons. And those two sons took Moabite wives, one by the name of Orpah and the other by the name of Ruth. However, tragedy struck in the land of Moab. First of all, Elimelech died, Naomi's husband, and then in turn her sons. Check one. Check two. All right. Thank you. Now, does this mean I should start from the beginning, or did you hear me? I did. Let's rewind a little bit. In the book of Ruth, we know that uh, that Ruth, sorry, that in the book of Ruth, we're going to get to Ruth in a second. That Naomi was the one who left uh, Judah and went to Moab, uh, along with her husband Elimelech and uh, their two sons. And their two sons married two Moabite women. It was there that that tragedy struck. It was there that the Lord and his providence took both Elimelech and her two sons from her. And in her her grief and in her mourning, but also in the practical matters of her protection and in her provision, she goes back to to Israel, to Judah, and she's wondering about what to do with these two daughters-in-law who too need protection, provision, the kind of thing that would happen through husbands, still in this day and age, but perhaps especially in that particular historical context. And so she tells these two women, who presumably have come to love her, to turn back, to go to their own people. Both of them, Orpah and Ruth, say, no, uh, we're going to go with you. But Naomi persists, saying, no, turn back. You know, what is there that I can possibly give you? And so Orpah is convinced to go back, but Ruth persists. We see this wonderful statement of really what what is a confession of faith in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 and following. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. I believe that that is a true Confession of faith, perhaps made all the more poignant and significant by the fact that she was a foreigner. You may know the rest of the story and how the Lord provides for for her for, uh, with a redeemer. and that in fact she becomes the great grandmother of, of David. Uh, and it is within the story in the narrative of David that a very parallel account occurs in the passage that we'll consider this evening in 2 Samuel chapter 15. So if you don't have your Bibles already open or you've turned somewhere else, like Psalm 2, turn back there. And let's begin to look at this passage. And first, let's get a little bit of context as far as what is going on in this passage. The situation, uh, just even as, as Scott suggested earlier, was that David, though a man after God's own heart, though the anointed king set upon Zion, uh, the one who is this glorious type of Christ, the one to whom the nations come, who uh who will, who will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, to whom is said, you know, that, that he is going to be the Son of God. And, and all the nations are commanded to kiss this son, lest he be angry, and they perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is the man who yet fell into grievous sin. And here in 2 Samuel 15, his sins against Uriah the Hittite and against his wife Bathsheba, sins that I, I think could be characterized fairly as murder and rape are still being borne out in his life, though forgiven. Though forgiven, yet there are rippling effects of this sin as there sometimes is. In fact, normatively would be, apart from the grace of God, in all of our lives. One of the things that took place afterwards and prior to this account is that David's oldest son, Amnon, raped his half sister Tamar. It seems that good genes ran in Tamar and, and Absalom's family. Tamar was a very beautiful woman, and, and uh, Absalom was a, was a handsome man. Very charismatic. He presented exceptionally well. And so Absalom takes out his vengeance upon Amnon in, in murdering him, which ostracizes him from David and Jerusalem for some time. Well, eventually... Absalom is allowed to return to Jerusalem where he lives for two full years without ever seeing his father, the king. But eventually he's reconciled to him. But it is when that happens that Absalom, perhaps having long been focusing on some sort of of plan or plot, begins to connive against the king. First of all, we see that he has these, these people that, that run ahead of him, these young men, 50 of them, and he gets himself a chariot, which would have been the kind of thing that only a, a king would have done. More than that, we read that he would position himself outside the city and he would intercept the people seeking the king in some sort of grievance. And he would intercept them saying, well, there is no man assigned for that particular issue or, or perhaps to that particular locale, perhaps a, a half-truth. But he would always finish this by saying, oh, you know, if, if, only, if only I was king, then I would, I would deal with this. There would be somebody assigned to cases like yours. And in this way, he stole the hearts of Israel. He began to plant the seeds for his uprising against his father, the king. And it was after two years that Absalom put this plan into action. He planned a sacrifice in Hebron, which was the place that David was first anointed king. And he strategically invited 200 leading men from Jerusalem who did not know about his plan to overthrow David. But this is very clever because these men now, having done this and having proclaimed himself king, and in fact having stolen from David one of his inner cabinet, his counselor Ahithophel, now all of a sudden these 200 men serve as political prisoners. If they should stand against Absalom, they risk their own lives and perhaps those of their family. And so in this way, the rebellion against David looks even much larger and more more thorough than it is. And so David finally flees with all of his household, with his bodyguard, his men of war, leaving only his concubines to care for the city and his house. And it's as they are leaving that they stop, and his servants pass by him, and by his personal bodyguard, the Cherethites and the Parathites. But last of all is a group of 600 Gittites. Now, Gittites are Philistines from Gath. And it's within this context that we're introduced to the man that we want to consider in, in, in some, yeah, in some depth this evening. A man who really does not appear much throughout the narrative of the Old Testament, only just in a, in a couple short chapters here in chapter 15 and then again in chapter 18. We'll look at both. But he is someone who I believe is an exemplar of the sort of loyal faith that we are to have in our anointed king from the very first day of our commitment calling for the sort of commitment to follow our anointed king, even unto death, even unto the very end. And he calls for that commitment right from the beginning. We see a wonderful confession of faith. I think it's fair to call it that in in him as well. So what we want to do this evening is, first of all, to consider The relationship between Ittai and David in the first place, why is Ittai here? Some of that background, some of it will be maybe some some conjecture, but I think informed from, from scripture, I think pretty safe conjecture. Secondly, we want to note Ittai's loyalty to the anointed king. And then lastly, we're going to turn over to chapter 18 and notice how it is that Ittai fights for David. So first of all, let's consider Ittai and how he sought refuge with David. We're told in verse 20 that David, or from the lips of David, that Ittai had only been with, with him since yesterday. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where. He urges him to turn back, go back and, and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. So what is it that drew Ittai, so recently to David, and as we will see, knit his heart to David so completely and loyally. Now the interesting thing here is that, and many of you may be aware of this already, is that David has quite a history with the Philistines of Gath. It starts, of course, with the slaying of Goliath, that giant from the city of Gath. But it's interesting, in light of this, this victory, um, that David actually seeks refuge in Gath with the king at that time, Achish, when he flees from Saul. It was then that he had to feign madness in order to protect himself. You may recall that he, you know, he acted like a madman, writing on things and, and, and letting the, the spit run down, run down his beard. But later on, too, he returned to Achish and Gath, and this time in less shame. For instance, in 1 Samuel 27, we're told that he and the 600 men earned the trust of Achish to the degree that Achish gave him a city to dwell in. Interestingly, the city was Ziklag, which was a Judaite city, which the Philistines had captured from Saul. So there's some ironies and some some interwoven things here that, that are significant. And then in chapter 29 of 1 Samuel, when the Philistines go to make war against Saul and Israel, David appears ready to fight on the side of the Philistines. Now, he doesn't have to go through with it because Achish has to send him back. He's forced by the other commanders, those five great cities of of the Philistines, to, to send him back. Now, it is possible getting into a little bit of, of conjecture here, that King Achish had made David and presumably his 600 men with him, his personal bodyguard at that time, seeing all the blessing that the Lord had given him in battle and in other ways as well. And so, for instance, in 1 Samuel 29, verse 6, Acha says to David, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in this campaign, for I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. And then again in verse 9, he says, I know that you are blameless in my sight as 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 an angel of God. Now, drawing from uh, an older commentary, a man by the name of Davies on 2 Samuel, there are a number of important connections between David and his relationship with Achish, and then Ittai and his relationship with David later on. Both David and Ittai were exiles. Each, some of you may have picked up on this already, had 600 followers. David took refuge in Gath. Ittai and his men came from Gath and took refuge with David. David accompanied Achish when the latter went up with him into battle against Saul. Ittai accompanied David when the war with Absalom commences. Achish sent David back, and David tries to do the same with Ittai. So there's some some significant connections here that lie in the past and perhaps give us some foundation to see what is going on with, with Ittai personally, what is it that would have drawn Ittai to David? Well, I think it is exceedingly likely that just as Achish saw the blessing of the Lord upon David's life, how he succeeded in everything he did, how he was just and blameless, how he worshiped the one true God in him alone, how he obeyed the law of the Lord, how he did other things like, like write psalms and, and had, just had tremendous blessing from God in everything he did, that these things drew iti to David. And in fact, David speaks of many of these things. He says in Psalm 18, 43 to 45, you delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Similarly, Psalm 2, which we read, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is precisely what Ittai has done. He notes that anyone against David perishes because God is with him. He sees the physical manifestations of God's blessing. But it is also likely that at some point, with David's past in Gath, that he was close enough to David to see something of David's life and heart. To see his worship of his covenant-making God, the Lord. For itai says in Second Samuel 15.21, like Achish before him, that as the Lord lives, he uses the name, the covenant name of God. And itai's example for us here is for all the world, for all those who have heard of the wonders, the miracles, the teaching, the fame of the anointed king who is the Lord Jesus Christ. David's offspring. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost when all those nations had gathered together. And with the anointing of the Holy Spirit and flaming tongues of fire upon him, he and the other apostles bore witness and people heard in their own languages. Yes, they were Jews, but being gathered for the nations a foretelling of the the mission to the Gentiles, foreshadowing of it. Jesus of Nazareth, Peter says, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. David raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter preached to all these people, some of them from Judah, Judea, others from further out, Samaria, and others throughout all of the known world come to partake in that feast. And he says, you all know, you've all heard, and now seek this Lord, for he's risen from the dead, he has been anointed king. And in his anointing, there is a pouring out of that blessing that now you see and hear. Take refuge in Christ. In our context, most of our world, most of the the people who dwell on these streets know the name, at least, of Christ. Christ. Some do not, some are coming here from other places in the world that they have never heard Jesus named and praise God for that. May they come to know the name of Christ here. And yet many people know, many people accept that he is a historical figure. They've heard about his great deeds and yet they need to be called to take refuge in this anointed son. The wrath of God is coming upon this earth. Christ will one day fully and, and complete the crushing of the nations with a rod of iron, dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ's wrath is quickly kindled when he will return, although he is being patient at this time. And only those who seek refuge in Jesus Christ, the Savior, and in his righteousness will be safe in the approaching judgment. Those who trust in the Lord shall not be put to shame. And so, if you are here this evening not having sought refuge in Jesus Christ, I urge you to to leave behind your pagan context, your pagan practices, and look to the anointed king that has been called the Son of God. Indeed, he is the Son of God, very God of very God. And yet he has been anointed for us, not only true God, but true man, dying for our sins, being raised for our justification, ascended to the Father, and now King over all things. In him there is safety, in him there is refuge, in him there is eternal life. But there may be, for a time, for a while, times of testing. And we see this very clearly in Itai's life and example. So let's consider his pledge of loyalty in this remarkable time. Remember that Itai has come to one whom he knows is blessed of the Lord, who is the true uh, God's anointed king. And there might be some some social or some political reasons, too, that he has come to, to Jerusalem or pledged his allegiance to the throne. But we know that he has taken refuge in the right man. And yet now, just one day later, his trust in the refuge of David is tested. The man that he thought was a great king is deposed. The man he thought a mighty warrior is fleeing. The man he thought blessed of God is going to shortly be cursed by one of his own people, Shimei. And another of his own inner circle has betrayed him. And in verses 19 and 20, of course, David urges this good man to go back, to return to the king. Now, the, the language here is unclear. That could mean back to the king of Gath. Remember, he's only been here a day. It could mean back to Solomon or I mean, sorry, back to Absalom, perhaps giving him a way out as if Ittai's pledge was to the the throne rather than the man who was seated on the the throne. But Ittai's response is precious beyond words. This is not just a great warrior speaking, although it is a great warrior speaking. It is the, the confession of a man who has come to know God, I believe. He says, as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for, life, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Uti's words here echo the words of faithful saints like like Ruth, who pledged loyalty to Naomi or God, and her God, and Jonathan, who pledged his loyalty to David over and against his own father. He tried to hold those, those, that balance in place, but eventually, even his own He died with his own father, and his own father many times turned against him. Ittai may only have been with David one day, but his mind is made up. He is unwavering in his commitment, even if it should mean his very life. And this is precisely the commitment that the Lord Jesus demands of each one of us, and from the very first day. Remember that although Jesus invites all to come to him, It is a universal call and to find eternal life and salvation from sin and freedom and peace and so much more that he warns those who would follow him, Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You can almost hear Jesus saying, listen, turn back. Are you you really with me? Have you really considered the cost? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes again against against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And so I tell you this very day that you must seek refuge in Jesus Christ or you will perish. And I trust many of you have. At the same time, I say that not only must you be willing to reign with Christ, as perhaps Ittai had hoped, but to be cast outside the city with our Lord and Savior. You must be willing not only to banquet with Christ, but also to grow hungry with him. You must be willing not only to, to lay down in peace in Christ's house, but be willing to have nowhere to lay your head. You must be willing not only to be glorified with Christ in his kingdom, but to endure curses and spitting for his sake. Ittai is loyal from the very first day. Are you? Are you willing to lose your, your life to gain your soul? Are you willing to walk the path that Jesus walks? Are you willing to drink the cup he drinks in order to sit with him on his throne or at his right hand? Itai and his six hundred men and all his loyal ones pay the price of Ittai's loyalty. Yet they do and will forevermore reap the reward of it as well. There is no other rock than our God. Christ may die, and he has. Yet he lives forevermore. And all those who put their hope in him will live forevermore with him. This leads us to the third thing we want to consider. And I want you to turn with me, please, to Second Samuel, over to chapter 18. David escapes narrowly in, in God's uh, providence and, and with, some, with some, some good counsel by some of David's own men. And now he's on the opposite side of the Jordan, in Gilead. He's being refreshed and helped by a man named Barzillai, the Gileadite. And David regroups there with his army. And I'm going to read here from Second Samuel 18, verses 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them, Commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. Jump down to verse 5. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders of Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Now notice firstly here the incredible honor accorded to Ittai the Gittite. He is only a few weeks with David at this point, and yet his loyalty, perhaps his valor, valor and might as a warrior, too, playing a role in the mix. He is rewarded by a third of David's army being put under his control. Note that the other two commanders the first, of course, David's nephew Joab, his general, uh, that man who is ruthless, effective, a great lo- leader and warrior, but but a man of of violence, a man of blood. The second is Joab's brother, the legendary Abishai, who's numbered in the list of David's mighty men only after the three. Both these two are closely related to David. Ittai not only is not closely related, he's a Gentile. Both these two have served David a long time. Ittai has only come recently, and yet Ittai is given the third position. And I want you to take note of this. There is always a place of reward and glory for those who follow God's King. Some of you may have just recently given your lives to Christ. Some of you may have been walking with Christ some time and yet it is only very recently that you have a a renewed fervor or zeal for him and his work. Some of you may feel as you look in the past of your life, I've wasted years. But Jesus relates in, in the parable of the workers that he goes out to find the master, finding those laborers, bringing them into the field to do the work, giving the denarius to those who had worked just even a single hour. That there is always a rich reward for those who follow Christ wholeheartedly with zeal, even if it is in the final days or hours of their lives. Praise God for his grace the reward for faithfulness and service will always vastly outweigh the sacrifice for God. And this leads us to sort of our, our last point this evening. That this is the last that we hear about Ittai. not listed in the records of David's kingdom. We never hear of him being given command again. He simply disappears from the story. And although we cannot be certain, I believe it is because Ittai did what he said he would do, that he fulfilled his vow and he died for his king, the anointed king of the God in whom he had come to believe, through God's son. Here's a man who followed David for probably just a few weeks. He left his children without a father. He left his fellow Gittites without a leader. His body was probably run through with the swords of Israelites as he sought to establish the kingdom of Israel. And yet he left his children not only with a legacy, but with a kingdom. He left his fellow Gittite soldiers not only with an example, but with a king. He left his, this earth establishing Zion as a holy mountain that all people might be drawn to it and to God who dwells there. And I can't help but think, looking forward in the narrative and looking forward in redemptive history of Stephen, the martyr. A mighty man, great in service to Christ, mighty in power, doing great signs and wonders, and powerful in speech for the sake of the kingdom. The church had only just been established when he was seized and brought before the Jewish council. And with the word of God as his sword, he defended David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke boldly, confident that no tongue raised against him could refute him in judgment. And he spoke of God's promises, and he spoke of mankind's sin, and he spoke of the king given for Israel by God, and they stoned him. And yet, as his own countrymen were killing him, and as he was at that very moment trying to establish the very kingdom that would fulfill God's promises, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus, the king, standing at the right hand of God. Stephen fell asleep trying to bring in the reign of the anointed king, just as Ittai did. One day you too will sleep. It may not be long. This life is short. It is like a passing dream, just like we, just like we sang like the grass that flourishes for the day and then it withers? Will you be loyal with the kind of zeal that we see in Ittai from this day forward? It does not matter that you have followed long or short. What matters is this day forward. Will you throw your lot in with Christ? Will you give up your life for his sake in order to find it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we return thanks to you for sending us our king, Christ, David's son, king of king and Lord of lords. Oh God, we lament that our zeal is not what it ought to be. So help us in our weakness. Lord we we lament some of us that we have not used our days fully for you in the way that we ought and so Lord redeem the years that the locusts have eaten help us to follow with this kind of loyalty from this day forward and Lord we look forward one day whether we live or we die with Christ in the flesh or whether we remain for when he returns Lord, we pray that we might have our place at the table with Christ, with the martyrs, with all the saints, having lost our lives in order to find find peace, eternal life, and glory with you. To your name be the ultimate glory and honor, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.